Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 182. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are coming to you live from a hand recorder in our studio <laughs> because we live in the lightning capital of the country. So the option was you don't get Monoreal Radio this week or we get a tea on the hand recorder. So back to back weeks. For what it's worth, we were having more fun the last time we did it on a hand recorder because we were at Dockside Margaritas, and now we're sitting with a lantern in our studio, but you get what you pay for, and how better to review this movie, Rocket Man, <laughs> than in these conditions? I feel like we have entered the Twilight Zone. This is probably <laughs> why... There has been a comedy of errors leading up to this recording. It's because we picked this movie for this week. We didn't even really pick this movie. It just sort of came up last week, and we thought, oh, funny, we moved to the Space Coast. Rocket Man seems appropriate. Yes. And now we are paying for it. Right. The real irony, too, is not just that we're doing back-to-back -back episodes on the hand recorder. Yeah, you go ahead and fess this one up. <laughs> we just bought a new computer. Last week. That's why Meet the Robinsons went out so late. We, right. We ended up having to get a new computer. We we did the Meet the Robinsons episode on it. Yeah. And here we are in the hand recorder. But we're, we're getting the episode out on time and that's what counts. <laughs> yeah. Even though we're talking about 1997's Rocket Man. Um, so here's the deal. Um, <laughs> this movie was a, a film that I saw once... When I was 11 years old, this film literally opened the day before my 11th birthday. And, well, at the age of 11, I didn't quite find this film very entertaining. So I never watched it again. Funny enough, Jackie owns Rocket Man on DVD and said, I love Rocket Man. Rocket Man's a great movie. And so, oh, you're going right under the bus. And hang on, I'm going to back it up. <laughs> you, for years, defended this movie. I wouldn't say defended it, but I have said I liked it when I was a kid, when I first saw it. That's why I own it. You have said I love Rocket Man. I have. Okay, don't back out of the... The question, though, and you've kind of already answered it, is does Jackie love Rocket Man as much as she did in 1997 to the point that she actually went out and bought the DVD? That is what we are here to discuss on what I believe is going to be a very short episode of Monoreal Radio. <laughs> this episode, for better or worse, is sponsored by Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date with all of the new releases. NASA is planning their first manned mission to Mars. During a training session, the astronauts crash their landing module and believe there is a glitch in their software, so they approach Fred Randall, the programmer who wrote the software, to find out what is wrong. 
when computer specialist Hackman is offended when Fred accuses him of using incorrect calculations, he tries to show Fred that the software is wrong, but a model of the landing module spins out of control, smashing into his head, and Hackman suffers a skull fracture and is unable to complete the mission. So in other words, the computer was hooked up to a model, not quite like an erector set, but it's hooked up to a model, and that is simulating the landing of the vehicle on the surface of Mars. Needing a replacement, Paul Wick nominates Fred as the replacement, for some reason, uh, since he wrote the software for the module. It seems like a plausible reason to nominate Harlan Williams to be a, an astronaut. Fred meets Julie <laughs> Ford, Bill Overbay, and their chimp Ulysses, who are also going on the mission, though they have no faith in the bumbling Fred. Bill gets Fred drunk for his own enjoyment and also to get him thrown off the mission, but Julie doesn't find it funny. Neither did the movie-going audience. Set on proving everyone <laughs> wrong, Fred starts breaking all of Bill's training records and edges out Gordon Peacock, a fellow astronaut, an actual astronaut, a trained astronaut, as the replacement. He goes to space where the comedy of errors continue and Fred continues to show how out of his element he is. When Ulysses takes Fred's sleep chamber, Fred is forced to stay awake alone during the eight-month trip to Mars while everyone else falls asleep. Bill and Julie awaken to see that Fred has been awake the entire time, this is now eight months later, and that he used all of their food as paint. Yeah, but they arrive at Mars too quickly for Bill to remain angry at Fred, in that particular moment at least. Once they arrive, Fred continues to be a foil to Bill, ruining every monumental moment of the mission because Bill worked his entire life for this and Fred tumbled around in a dryer as a child. They also realized... <laughs> this, is, this is so true. I have never read a plot this way. I may not again. I hope I never have to. I just want to see. No, I didn't write, write that down. No, I didn't write that down. No. They also realized, because now we're on Mars and Fred's a foil, that a windstorm is threatening to compromise the mission, but Bill is intent on getting rock samples and completing the mission, so he sets off with Ulysses to finish the mission, which was to find signs of life on Mars, because Fred was not enough of evidence. He has to go and try to find something else, so they're bringing back the rocks. Well, the windstorm hits, and Fred leaves to rescue Ulysses and Bill. He gets them back to the ship, but he gets lost himself. Bill leaves and rescues Fred and brings him back. They leave with the samples after Fred fixes the module, because the computers are all scrambled, wires are getting pulled out because they are tumbling back to Earth because they just can't manage to get out of this windstorm. By the way, this was one of the many things that... Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. To Fred's credit, it was the only thing that he really, truly did fail in his training. But, in a miraculous turn of events, he makes it work, leading to one of Jackie's favorite moments in any film, a NASA celebration. 
Fred and Julie share a dance on the ship. Yeah, and when it's time to go to hypersleep, Ulysses again takes Fred's place, and I can only hope that Fred starved to death on his way back because they had no food, and I don't know how you're going to survive in space without food for eight months. Here's what I can tell you that I like about this movie. The intro, and that's about it. Because... The intro of the film is Fred, as an adolescent, tumbling in a dryer, pretending that he's in a free fall, in a space capsule, while he's looking out at a photograph of the Earth. I actually love the intro to this movie, because you get this moment with Fred as a child, and every kid plays make-believe, right? But you also see that on the drying rack, there's NASA sheets, so clearly he and boxers. and boxers he loves nasa it's 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 what you think the kind of kid that loves nasa is going to be dressed in what he's going to sleep in and i thought that it was a great introduction to the character and i really had high hopes moving forward and my dreams were crushed go ahead why bother <laughs> I don't even have a leg to stand on at this point. Even even the parts of it that I still enjoy, I don't even want to go up against you on this one. Okay, do you have anything on the introduction of this movie before I skip forward? No, the introduction, that is what I have always remembered most about this movie. I think it was clever then. I think that holds now. As you said, because it does develop the character a little bit. And the kid's performance, I think, is really good. Super charming. Yeah. I, I think it's a strong intro. It's still funny. And I will stand by that. But it is pretty much all downhill from here. Um, here's the thing. Fred's insanity is good for a kid. Right? Like, if the target audience is 10 years old, it's great. And at first, you fall into a really false sense of security. Because you believe that his smarts will balance out the insanity, kind of like an unhinged genius. Which I think is kind of what they were trying to do. And I thought maybe that's what they were going to do. Because when you do have the scene with Fred and the astronauts and he's going through the software, and he explains what Hackman did wrong, you start thinking, okay, he's zany, he's out of his mind, but he actually has the education and the brilliance to back this up. And unfortunately, they don't do enough past that point to convince you of this, other than for Wick... Or for uh, Bo Bridges' character, uh, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head because it's just kind of irrelevant. Uh, the Apollo 13. Uh... Yeah, apparently he's what caused Apollo 13. Yeah. Or Wick is what caused Apollo 13. I don't know, because they say both. The point, of the, the point is, you rely on them telling you how smart Nesbeth, that's his name, Nesbeth, you... Like Mrs. Nesbeth? Yeah. How did we forget that? I was actually just going to look, but I don't think 
Well, Shelley Duvall is not credited on IMDb. Yeah, good for her. <laughs> she had the sense to not get credited as his mother, as Fred's mother in the movie. No, and I don't think Bo Bridges is on there either. No, Bo Bridges is. He, is? Okay. he wasn't lucky enough or smart enough, sorry, and I love Bo Bridges. But the point is, other than those two characters telling us he's brilliant, we don't have anything to show us that he's brilliant. They, they rely too much on the dialogue, and that's a big problem. What's also problematic, I, I agree with you 100%, but what's also problematic is I think we can expect him to be quirky. A character like this is going to be so concerned with his education as he's growing up. He's definitely going to lack an understanding of social norms. But... The issue is that there's really not a lot to make him a likable character that we're going to root for. Right. Like, usually you get sort of the brainiac genius who's so smart, he, he's like the bumbling fool in yeah. social situations. And that should be funny because that's sort of what Fred is. But, like, right. he's not a walking calamity. It's just more... Like, verbal diarrhea, and he doesn't know when to stop talking, and there, there's not enough to redeem that to make him likable. It's not like a Sheldon Cooper, even though this is years before Big Bang Theory, where Sheldon is so brilliant, he doesn't know how to talk to people, and he can often be condescending. Right. Which, as the character, you know, goes on... What makes him so funny is that he does know how condescending he is, and he does it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but this is not a case of Sheldon either. Right. They had a lot of potential here, but there's just not enough to make him a really endearing character. He never gets smart enough for you to believe that NASA would hire him. And I, let me just... I want to put this out there right now. I don't... Not, not that I anticipate he's ever going to listen to this podcast... But, on the off chance that maybe he does, I just want to say, I do not blame Harlan Williams for this performance either. I think Harlan Williams, I think unfortunately he was typecast, because he is very funny, he does impressions, he's brilliant in Down Periscope, he's hysterical in Down Periscope, he's funny in Employee of the Month. I don't blame Harlan Williams for this. I want that out there. I think he played the role that was written. I think he played the role that he was directed to play. It's not his fault. But he's not endearing enough. And he just can't get out of his own way. And here... I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to put this out here too. Because I can't, I can't possibly spoil my review at this point. The movie is a product of its time. The really stupid, zany, out-of-control, too-good-to-be-true humor that you saw in the 90s. First off, by 1997, I don't think it was quite in vogue anymore. Um, I mean, you had movies like Good Burger that came out after this. But Good Burger, for as dumb as that movie is, and I didn't like that much as a kid either, there was a balance. Because Kel was, you know doing his Ed thing, and Keenan and the rest of the cast, and poor Abe Fergoda's in that movie, it balances it out. Right. And there's actually, like, layers to that. I think the problem is that you had movies 
like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura, both Jim Carrey flicks, that really played up on this kind of like stupid humor. Dumb and Dumber specifically. But here's the difference between a movie like Dumb and Dumber and a movie like Rocket Man. Dumb and Dumber, the Coens, I believe, wrote that. Was it the Coens or the Flaherty's? I, all right, we're going to have to look that up. Um, Dumb and Dumber, for what it is, is a much deeper movie than people give it credit for. Ferrelli Brothers. The Ferrelli Brothers. That's what I knew it was one of those duo brothers that took off in the 90s. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think it was the Coens. Um, but that movie is about, I mean, yes, it's stupid, it's dopey, and there's toilet humor. But you have endearing characters. You have a subplot that's actually quite good. Mm -hmm. The fish-out-of-water sequences, because they believe they're after something when, in fact, the complete opposite is happening. Wrong place at the wrong time. Wrong place at the wrong time. That movie is about love, it's about jealousy, it's about friendship, it's about betrayal, it's about forgiveness. That movie is layered. This movie is just an hour and a half of dumb with one-dimensional stupid characters and it absolutely goes nowhere. That is one of my rants. I'm sure it's not my only one, but that is one of my rants, but I want to put this out there now. Sorry I took up so much time, Jack, but this movie is a product of its time, but the problem is it's on the tail end of its time, and it didn't do it nearly as well as even a bad movie like Good Burger. You know what's so funny, though? I am really glad that you brought that up, because that was the exact comparison that I was going to make. Not Good Burger, uh, although I did like Good Burger when I was younger. I mean, Good Burger, I still do. Good Burger, I, I like for the nostalgia. See, I don't like the movie, but I like the nostalgia around Good Burger. But I think Good Burger actually has something else going for it, is that what it successfully managed to do was take a skit and develop a character enough to turn it into a feature-length movie, yeah. which is where Rocket Man fails from the jump. Yes. Fred's character feels like an SNL skit. Yes. And the movie feels like it drags on for an hour and a half because there just wasn't enough to give him a strong enough character arc, which I realize now because my original point was as a kid, I liked Rocket Man and Good Burger and I did not find Jim Carrey movies funny. I have since seen the light. Now I have, like I saw The Mask when I was a kid. I'd seen Ace Ventura. I just didn't, I wasn't into it. Dumb and Dumber completely changed my mind. Then I got it. And I had seen Liar Liar. I didn't even like Liar Liar. Wow. But now, Liar Liar is brilliant. It is. I think that, well, that's the thing. And again, that's what makes those movies different from this. Those movies, kids like them because it's Jim Carrey and he's nuts. 
But there's enough there where most of those films are just filled with adult humor that a kid doesn't understand, but they understand that Jim Carrey's going crazy and they laugh because it's silly. The humor translate it translates as an adult. Nothing here translates as an adult when you sit and watch it in your mid-30s. No, like even uh, the thing with the popcorn kernel getting stuck in his teeth, and then when he flicks it out, and it's it's the first of far too many injuries on Gary. Right. I I mean, I can't say. I honestly don't remember if I found that funny as a kid, but now I think it's disgusting. Yeah. The, the continuing gag to your point where Gary is just getting hurt and run into it's one after another after another once was enough once was enough we didn't need to see it so many times right because you needed it as a plot point to take him out so that Fred can get on this mission yeah but there was absolutely no need to make it a running gag correct just like it wasn't me because you oh. start hearing it early when he runs into Nesbitt and he says, it wasn't me, the lunch lady, the cafeteria lady pushed me into the door. And I thought, and the thing was like, okay, it's kind of funny when he says it to Nesbitt, but then he repeats the same fabricated story to Wick and it's not all that funny anymore, but this continuing running gag because he must say, I mean, if you want a drinking game for this movie, just drink every time he says it wasn't me. Um, that should be like a finisher drink. You die. The, every time he says it, it gets less and less and less funny. Here's the other thing about that scene where he runs into Nesbeth and his paperwork goes everywhere. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't even see say Nesbeth without thinking about Buzz Lightyear. That scene is just ruined for me. I wish she was carrying a cup of Darjeeling that got knocked over. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Fred's lying. Because when Wick comes to find them, obviously Fred is trying to save face and he keeps blaming it on the cafeteria lady who, who ran into him. No, you didn't get your credentials that Wick was trying to set up for you. You didn't even, like, sneak in underhanded, in an underhanded way. Like, you just kind of walked in because you're far too excited. But for somebody who is so excited, you would think that he should know better than to blow this opportunity and to pay attention. But the lie is what really does it for me because you, again, are not doing anything to help us root for you and like you. The problem, and you hit it right on the head, is the fact that he's waited for this his whole life. Again, in that actually really strong intro where you meet him and his father goes, why can't he just play football like the rest of the kids? Like, it tells you what you need to know is he's an outsider, he's an outcast because he goes against the grain. So to your point, he finally has this opportunity to show everybody that they were wrong. It's like that Toby Keith song, How Do You Like Me Now, when everybody made fun of him because he wanted to be a country music star and he ended up being a superstar and he wrote a song about it. That's where this movie should have been going. And that's the complete opposite of where it went because in that scene where he gets to NASA, he is like a child who just doesn't listen. And it doesn't make any sort of sense. And it doesn't 
leave you connected to the character at all because it feels like he's blown his opportunity the moment he walked in the door. Right, and even if they had just done something as simple as maybe made his dad a little bit harder on him because we see how his mom coddles him and at 30 years old is still making him cut out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the shape of stars and rockets and all this, it would have given him a little bit of a stronger arc if he had to prove this to his naysaying father. Like, I didn't need a montage of him getting picked on in school for for being the nerd or for liking outer space and other kids weren't into it or him being a science geek. Like, no, none of that. None of that would have affected the character. None of it would have paid off in the end. He doesn't need to be an I told you so character. But maybe just the... I'm going to prove my worth and prove that I'm more than you think I am and more than I even I know I can be. That would have made him stronger. We weren't terribly kind to Kronk's new groove because the movie really just wasn't that great. But if they would have gone in that route of get a thumbs up from Poppy, which is what yes. they did in Kronk's New Groove, that would have made this a better movie. You see what I'm saying? We just compared this to Kronk's New Groove. We, and we took another movie that's not good. Because Kronk's New Groove, for some of the funny moments, is just not a good movie. It was a squandered opportunity with a great character. It was like such an opportunity to be such a good sequel. And it wasn't. For a multitude of reasons. It is a bad movie. But if you took the elements from that bad movie and put it into this, it would have made it a better movie. So you see what I'm saying? Like we keep pulling from bad movies and throwing it at a wall that is Rocket Man, and all of those all of those elements from other bad movies would have elevated this to a bad movie instead of a horrendous one. I want to talk about a few things. I think they did right okay. over the next couple of scenes. You go ahead. <laughs> where they try to make him a little bit more endearing. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is probably the biggest pitfall of this film. Because whether you find it funny or not, that that's a matter of personal taste. And I think some people will give this movie a pass for the humor, but because the character falls apart, there's just not a lot for us to go on here. But where they do try and make him endearing, they get him drunk at the bar, as you said. Yeah. So you see he's getting picked on by his new peers. Um, and they find out that, or he finds out that he's rooming with Ulysses, which... Never in a million years is that going to happen. At an off-site house, they're not going to have you rooming with a chimpanzee. Uh, but anyway, there's the scene where there's the thunderstorm and Ulysses is scared. And even though he's still in a drunken stupor, he's trying to calm him down by singing him a song. It's the original Thunder Buddy song. It is. Not as good. No. But it is supposed to be a heartwarming moment. Um... You know, I don't necessarily get the warm and fuzzies from it like I do with other films, but they try. They get credit for trying to make him likable. If he had been more of a likable character up to that point and not just a bumbling fool for the sake of making him a bumbling fool, 
then yes, that moment would have hit harder. Yes. Um, the other thing that I think that they did a pretty good job with, not, not the entire training sequence, I think the isolation chamber is funny. And I think that is, that's where the credit goes to Harlan Williams, to your point before, because he gives a good performance despite what he had to work with. Fred is totally comfortable being on his own and enjoying his own, his own company, which is juxtaposed against the competition who is right next to him just trying to sleep it off and can hear everything that is going on right next door. Yeah, um, here's the thing. I think this is one of the most insufferable scenes in the movie. But, to your point, I don't blame Harlan Williams. I think Harlan Williams gave a good performance. When he's doing the sock puppet thing, that's actually quite funny. The way he's throwing his voices and creating these characters, that I thought was pretty funny. But, again, at nauseum, and I'm going to try not to say it too many more times because I, I can only say it so many times. So just for reference, I am trying to prevent myself from repeating myself. For once. This individual, because this is the whole, this is the whole movie. He's too stupid and too unaware of his surroundings to work for NASA and for somebody that cares so much about the space program and it being his dream growing up. It is irrational that he would squander this opportunity and not see what is in front of him because he worked for it his entire life. You know what I'm realizing now, too? There is sort of a big piece of the puzzle that was left out as to why he's... I don't want to say a failed astronaut because he eventually does make it into space, but how he ended up being a computer programmer versus actually, you know, having having a career as an astronaut. Right. And I mean, we can sort of connect those dots. It's probably because he wasn't focused enough to pull that off. Right. Uh, but this is the, this is the point that I'm making with the isolation chamber too. It's that he is comfortable being on his own because it's all he's ever known. He was obviously an outcast kid. That's why he's playing by himself in a dryer. Um, that's why he's able to handle this isolation chamber, but I think it would have pushed the character a little bit further if there was some sort of a reveal as to why being alone doesn't phase him. And that could have been as simple as a throwaway line with like a conversation with Nesbeth later on or, or something. Right. The rest of the training sequence is a debacle. With the G-Force test, uh... The competition handles it until Fred says that he ate, uh, what was it, a liver and head cheese sandwich? Yeah. Gross. Uh, which is vomit-inducing to the competition. But the really gross part, which is not funny at all, wasn't funny to me then, certainly isn't now, that uh, Wick slips in the vomit. And it's like, how did you not see... You all saw him getting sick and that he didn't make it out to a bathroom in time. How do you manage to slip on that? The funniest part about this scene is when 
Fred gets launched off the arm of the machine and he crashes through the wall and you have the nuns <laughs> leading a tour and as he's passing by them in the hallway because the chair is sliding down the hallway, he gives the sign of the cross and he starts saying the Hail Mary. That's the funniest part of the scene, but it's because it's genuinely funny. Like, it's, it's, it's like, very, very well done. It is, but I, see, I also get lost because that chair coming off the, off the track and the, the bolts coming loose, granted the Commander Bill, as his record is about to be broken, he's the one who says, push him farther uh, and, and, you know, keep turning up the force. But to me, it doesn't speak very highly of NASA that this thing just came undone. Yes. I mean, listen, at this point, we're just going to suspend reality. There's a lot of films where NASA pulls off incredible things, like in Armageddon, but we know that it's not real. And that movie is ridiculous within and of itself, but we still love Armageddon for what it is, because you have deep characters, you have drama, you have victory, you have tragedy, you have happiness, you have sadness. This is just all sadness. Um, so I'm willing to suspend reality to, to a point, especially for comedy. He's going to get launched off the arm. I'm not going to go, NASA wouldn't let that happen. NASA's had plenty of goofs in the past, and unfortunately, none of them were ever that funny. But, like, in, in this case, that's just, to me, you know, it's funny, like, you're knocking it, and I'm saying it's one of the actual funny parts in the film. Not the vomit, that's stupid. But the rest of it is actually kind of funny, and I buy that Wild Bill would do this as well. I'll buy that from Wild Bill. To me, the most egregious part of this training, though, is the um, the the chair, the oh, rotating the chair. Yeah. Um, he has to put the he has to connect the wires, a program that, or a system that he built. And they have a time test first, and he's able to do it, I think, in, in record time. It's like 60 seconds or something like that, which, yes, you would hope he designed it. Uh, and Nesbeth is the one timing him. And then he's like, all right, now do it with the chair spinning. How do you survive the G-force test at that level? And this is too much for you. In his defense, the G-force test, you're just sitting there telling them, keep going until I can't take it anymore. In this, you have no task other than to tell them you can't take it anymore. In this case, with the spinning chair and having to do the wires and the circuitry, the wires are flinging all over the place. You're discombobulated. You're confused. You're dizzy. You're disoriented. I will actually give that one a pass. Interesting. See, what I would have done, and I think this would have been more powerful when they tie it back in later. Because he designed this, he should have been able to do it with his eyes closed. That would have, to me, if they had done it in scene where the rotating was just too much for him, like if Nesbeth had given him that little nugget of information of like, block everything out, you know this, you designed it, do it with your eyes closed, and then he does it, maybe even gets it like halfway done, in the required amount of time, it would have set up why he's able to pull it off later, and it would have also established their bond 
that seemingly comes out of nowhere. Yes, because when he fails, he tells him he's useless, he tells him he's a failure, he tells him he's a letdown, all of these harmful things, because he failed the first time on the spin test after he said he, he had done it without spinning the fastest that he's ever seen done, after he withstood this, you know, six G-forces, like, out of nowhere, he just snaps at him, and then, like, they're best friends again. It It's just... I mean, it's so poorly written, but that's just par for the course. This entire movie is poorly written. Right, and then they don't have a lot of scenes together until Bud gives him the coin. Yeah, which makes no sense because the last thing that you saw, w with them at least, was that Bud couldn't stand him. Right, and Bud is sitting here saying, oh, the you know, when we were doing Apollo 13, the president gave me three coins, I gave one to... Uh, I gave one to... No, it was when he got appointed the head of NASA. Uh, yes, yes, He yes, gave yes. one to Armstrong, one to Lovell, and he's giving the bravery one to... And that's to what Fred I'm Rand. saying. Fred didn't earn that. No. But had they had a bonding moment in that scene, it would have made all the sense in the world. Especially because that coin comes back into play later on, and it's it's a big part of how they make it out. Yeah. I want to talk about the scene before the coin, though. I want to talk about the press conference. Oof. Yeah, oof. <laughs> um, how Fred was not fired after the press conference for his behavior in front of the press when they announce that he is the one that is going to be going to Mars is irrational. It's not funny. But there was still a chance for this movie. And I think this is where the movie could have been redeemed. And they missed. Because everybody at NASA seems to be an apologist for Fred because they don't want this mush this mission to be delayed. They want to get the mission off the ground. And I will give them that. There's a plausible reason for it. If Because of these storms on Mars, they'd have to wait another two years. So they're pushing this through come hell or high water. Or, or sandstorm, as it were. Where this movie could have actually been funny and where the movie could have taken off from here is if Bill and Julie act as the leads with Fred as a background foil. Sort of in the like the vein of like an airplane. Okay. And they are the ones, like, we're all in on the joke, but because it's their lives at stake, they play the straight men to his foil, which, or a straight man and straight woman, I should say, to his foil, which is kind of what they try to do, but they don't do it well enough. It should have been at that point that they take over and they have to overcompensate for him. Right, because their motivation is that they've trained for this, they've been wanting it for their whole lives, and nothing, not even Fred, is going to stand in their way. But that's the problem. All they care about is achieving their goal, which which they should. As characters, we need them to obviously care about their goal. But the problem is, they don't really acknowledge Fred as an obstacle. They don't merge those two storylines. They just 
go along with it. I am glad you bring up the press conference scene, though, because believe it or not, that could have been worse. The initial plan was to have Fred faint when he finds out that he's going into space, which you could argue would be fitting for the character because yes. he's so excited. But Harlan Williams was actually the one who fought to have it seem like he won a pageant because he thought it would land harder and it would be funnier. Believable? No. I will give you that. He probably should have been fired for behaving that way. But we're, we're sitting here making the argument like, okay, you withstood the G-force, but you couldn't handle the, uh, the rotating chair. If he fainted from this news, would we buy that he could go into space? Probably not. But it would have saved us so much aggravation. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about when they go to space, because that basically happens right after the press conference, like you do. Um, holy B-roll, Batman. Oof. So bad. It's really bad. And do you know what's horrific about it? There is such a continuity issue. There is such a continuity issue, it's not even funny. The B-roll that they used is of the space shuttle launching. Mm -hmm. But they're not in the space shuttle. Right. They're in something that kind of looks like the space shuttle, but the wings are not the same. So when you actually see the vehicle get launched into space, you're watching a different vehicle get launched. And they tried to hide it because the solid rocket boosters that detach, because those are the same, and because the nose is the same, and because the paint job and the tiles are the same, they thought they could hide it. But the minute you see that vehicle in orbit and you see the wings, you know right away that is not the space shuttle. That's a big problem. That's so funny because you're looking at it from the technicality of the rocket and I'm looking at it going that some of this footage is from 1980 and some of it's from the early 90s and they're trying to match, match it up and pass it off. Um... To, well, I don't want to, I was almost going to say to their credit, uh, they were shooting in Texas, so they didn't have Port Canaveral available to film at, uh, so it's no wonder that they chose stock footage, but they could have and should have done better. If you're going to choose stock footage, then the vehicle that they're in space in needs to be the vehicle that gets launched in the launch sequence. Well, that's the other thing. You bothered to green screen that. Why not just do it for the launch? I mean, I, I don't know. Were they trying to do it cheap? I don't know. Unless, no, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think that's CGI. I think they used a model. They probably, maybe they did. But they could, I mean, they could have done the same thing. For the launch. Or, if you're going to use the model, just use a model of the space shuttle. You could buy them at Target back in the day. A kid <laughs> could have assembled it. it. You just, that's, you can't, that would be like in Back to the Future, if Marty takes off in the DeLorean in 1985, and when he gets to 1955, he's in the Batmobile. It's right. not the same vehicle. Right. It's a big 
problem. The other thing that happens here, and I think that, I think this is a critique that I have. I'm curious to see your take on it. I will say that this critique, I do think, will fall on a lot of deaf ears. Because I think you had to be a child of the 90s to have this viewpoint. The space disaster movies were in vogue because of Apollo 13. Right. When you try to do a spoof of a space disaster film, or any sort of space movie, there are just certain things that you can't do. Even though it's a spoof, it's not a straight parody. Right. This is not a straight parody. This is an airplane. Try as they might. You know, this isn't like not another teen movie. It's not like scary movie. It's not a straight parody. Not Spaceballs. Correct. So when he takes his helmet off in the middle of the launch because he sneezed in it, because it's disgusting, that would never happen in the launch. Because these space films were so in vogue at the time that this movie got made, mm -hmm. even as a kid watching it, you go... He shouldn't be able to do that. I don't think an audience now is going to see it that way because it's been so long since the space movie was a thing, yeah. since it was a trend. But as an 11-year-old at the time that saw all of these other movies coming and saw movies like Space Camp, you know, saw the right stuff, all of those things, you, you, you saw it, you knew it wasn't possible. Right. I don't... I actually don't know if I picked up on that as a kid even for as many space movies you know as you see um but it's something that I did think of now and again this is where it's like Julie and Bill have to care about what how how what Fred is doing affects them no Fred taking his helmet off is not going to do anything to them but the fact that they just keep ignoring him there has to be some kind of stock in that you guys are a team. And if he fails, you fail. And they never even acknowledge that. No. No. Which would have made sense because since you're not doing a straight parody, all of these space movies in the 90s all came down to that. We're a team. We do this together or we fail. Whether it was in a heartwarming and based on a true story, victorious way, like in Apollo 13, or if it's in a complete cheeseball, I love you, Harry, way, like in Armageddon, at the root of it, they all do the same thing. This movie fails to do that, and that's a huge problem, where if you had made the turn where Bill and Julie are not in on the gag then it would have worked. Right, and it starts to tiptoe into that into that realm, and then they just retract from it, because usually in those scenarios, it's because one of them wants to be a hero and have all of the glory, and somebody's standing in their way. But no matter what, no one wants to die. Everyone wants to go home to Earth, and right. the fact that they don't acknowledge that is mind-boggling. Right. Um... I think that if they at least, you know, if they weren't going to do that, the movie 
would have worked better too, perhaps if once they got into space and if they planted it in the beginning because Ulysses was his roommate, if Ulysses continued to be the foil to Fred. You see it with the space chamber, with the sleep chamber scene. And with the food. Yeah. If that would have continued on, yeah. perhaps there would have been something there and it would have been Julie and Bill misunderstanding and believing that this computer genius is an idiot when in fact it's been the chimpanzee the entire time. Then we're in on the joke as the audience and we're watching all of them not understand what's going wrong. That could have been very funny, but they didn't do that either. It also would have made it so much more plausible when Fred is seeing that the storms are worse than they initially thought and no one except for Nesbeth wants to believe him. But why? He was good enough to design this program. He was good enough to identify and fix the error. He was good enough to get on this flight because you trust him to correct the error once they're up in space. So why are we not going to believe him about the storms? If it would have been a boy who cried wolf situation and yeah. we see that it's happening, it would have made for an added layer of drama that would have done a world of good for this movie. One thing that I found funny as a kid, and I still sort of do, it doesn't hit as hard though, before they go in, before the hypersleep mishap, uh, the call with the president. Leading up to that, losing Bud's coin, disgusting, could have done without all that. Uh, but the whole world's in your hands. I still think that's funny. I think Harlan Williams is funny when he's trying to sing it in other languages and he's just making things up and he's pulling words in. That's very funny. When the president starts singing it, yeah, it's funny. Um, again, it could have been funnier if you really see how Bill and Julie are cringing and they're trying to feign enthusiasm because they're on global television. Um, the funny comes from Harlan Williams, but I still don't find the scene funny. Or maybe by this point, I'm just so sick and tired of the sight of everything that's happening in this film <laughs> that almost nothing they do short of Fred getting sucked out into the, into the, the vacuum of space and the movie coming to an end, nothing they were going to do at this point was going to make me happy. Perhaps that were the case too. Maybe, maybe I have a bias and I'm not afraid to admit it. All right, so now we get to this hypersleep or lack thereof sleep mm -hmm. montage. Mm -hmm. um, I like the song. I think that they utilize that well. Um, I like that, you know, as we've seen before, Fred is making the best of the situation and he's just doing anything and everything that he can to keep himself occupied. Where it falls apart is that when he realizes what's going on with the storm and he radios it into to Bud and he's talking to him. Uh, Bud, it's a throwaway line, it's really quick, but it does sort of collapse the entire idea. Buzz says if, Bud says if Wick finds out about this, he's going to freak out or whatever. And Fred's like, no, don't worry about it. I already reprogrammed the hypersleep so nobody's ever going to know. If you reprogram the hypersleep, why didn't Ulysses, or your, where you're supposed to be sleeping, your chamber open, you move the monkey, and then you can all go to sleep where you're supposed to. 
I mean, it would be a detriment to the rest of the film as far as, you know, Wick becoming the mayor in Jaws. Keep the beaches open. Yeah. Keep the mission going, you know. Yeah. But, um... There, there was an easy fix, and you just gave it to us as far as the hypersleep goes. And are we just going to overlook the fact that he could have been in touch, in touch with NASA this entire time? He could have been in touch with NASA the right. entire time. Well, or maybe there, there could have been more of a throwaway line of, you know, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to get in trouble. Or have you think there was a problem, but I have to raise this flag now because of the storm. And when he's told to ration his food, he instead uses it as paint. Yeah. Because why? I mean, I'm waiting. <laughs> I mean, obviously to keep himself occupied, but it, it's not even good enough for the comedy bit. The man is literally too stupid to survive. He should not have been sent to Mars. Right. And this is where it's like, you love and respect NASA so much. Here's your chance to be an astronaut. You have to know that there's a limited amount of food. You, just like, that's the other thing. It seems like he doesn't even know how far or how long this voyage is. If his mother was not cutting rocket-shaped peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for him, he'd be dead. He would have starved <laughs> to death. This man should not be an astronaut. This... I don't have much more to say on this movie, which is crazy because we're only like halfway in. But it's at this point that even as an 11-year-old, I was completely lost and nothing they did was going to fix it. And I really thought that when I saw it again now, that my opinion, I was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe my opinion will change. Maybe there's something in here that's really funny that I didn't pick up on as a kid or I didn't appreciate. Maybe there's that innuendo and like buried adult humor that only a grown up would find funny. And I'll sit here and I'll have a few. Nope. No. Nothing has changed since 1997. Interesting you bring that up about being halfway through the movie. That's another thing that's way off here is the pacing. You've got the first act with him going through the training. Second act is in space. And for a film that is about a mission to Mars, the third act is Mars. Yeah. You know, it's not like Armageddon where, you know, the whole thing is obviously to blow up the asteroid and they have to get through all of the training, but that's the thing. It's a bigger cast. The training takes a little bit longer, but you're in space before the halfway point of the movie. It's, it's everything else that happens and all of the other obstacles that happen while they're up there. Here, they wake up from the hypersleep. They get to Mars. Aside from the brewing storm, nothing else really happens that puts them in peril. It's all just this conflict between the commander and Fred because the commander wants his moment in the spotlight. He wants to be the first man on Mars. And, you know, because Fred is Fred, there's a mishap and he ends up being the first person on Mars. And that's the other thing. 
that's that's a running gag that gets old real quick where everything that happens, I'm the first person on Mars to do this, first argument on Mars, first this on Mars, first blush on Mars because he's hitting on Julie, who somehow after being asleep for eight months is starting to have feelings for him that come seemingly out of nowhere. It's a lack of oxygen. It's what it has <laughs> Or a lack of options. I would go for Ulysses before I went for Fred. <laughs> I'm not even afraid to say that. No, I mean, they sort of allude to it when they're talking about, before they go into hypersleep, there's that moment where they're talking about wishing upon the star. Which, by the way, Harlan Williams does do a very good Jiminy Cricket. I'll he give does. him that. And Cowardly Lion. But it's a bonding moment. It's not much of a romance moment. It's just more showing that Fred is misunderstood. I'd hardly call this a budding romance. It could have been the springboard for something to happen later on, but instead they just like figure that to be like, all right, good enough. Now, now we can go with this. We can go with this budding romance. To your point about the pacing, they waste no time getting him from computer programmer to NASA training, and I thought, okay, it's paced pretty well at first. But then the rest of it is just a disaster. It's like if you sat through the first 90 minutes of Titanic watching Rose pack her bags. That's the equivalent of what happens here. Right. You spend so little time on Mars, which is a shame because one of the few victories of this film is the Mars set. It actually looks really good. I think the set that they developed for Mars was excellent, and it's a shame you didn't spend much of any time there. It's actually not a set, it's Utah. Well, whatever, they. but I'm saying, like, they knocked it out of the park. Oh, yeah, they made it work. I was trying to find out a little bit more. I mean, obviously, they lit it to look red, but that was impressive to me, because I thought it was going to be more of a controlled environment. Right, like on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they shot the movie in, I think, I think this movie shot in two months. God does it ever show. <laughs> Except for when they're on Mars. That actually looks good. Speaking of time on Mars, do you want to talk about the uh, manipulation of, we gotta get out of there. If they're not back in 20 minutes, leave without them. Yeah, it's, uh, for a life and death scenario, there's certainly a lot of fluidity with the timeline, isn't there? Well, that's the thing. For a life and death situation, 20 minutes is an awfully long time. Yeah. Yeah. And then that 20 minutes gets stretched out to about a half an hour because, you know, at, at first, Ulysses and the commander aren't back, so Fred goes out to save them. He finds the commander trapped under the the rover vehicle. Right. Uh, and then, uh, again, what could have been a redeeming bonding moment is squandered because Fred tells him to call me mommy so that his adrenaline increases and he'll be able to lift this thing off. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't have much to respond to. I mean, you're, you're looking for me to respond. You know, or you know what my response is already. No, it's, it's terrible. So he gets the commander out. 
Uh, and then Ulysses' tank is empty, so Fred offers to hold his breath and make it back to the ship. That I'll actually, I'll give them credit for because Fred had proved that he could break every record, so it's plausible that he can hold his breath. Uh, but the commander and Ulysses make it back before Fred does, and then that's when the commander's like, give me an extra five minutes and then leave without me. So, yeah, you, you've bought yourself an extra half hour. Basically. Uh, and then, you know, they're they're leaving Mars to get back to the the rocket or the space shuttle or whatever you want to call it. The, no, it's not a space shuttle. The not, the not so space shuttle space shuttle. Exactly. Uh, and it comes down to Fred's final test, which is the computer system that he built. And now he's got to redeem himself on this rotating chair that he failed right but in the real life situation right and this is what this is what i was talking about before where it would have been so much more effective if nesbeth had made him do it with his eyes closed because then it doesn't matter that they're in a free fall tumble he could have still just programmed everything Mm -hmm. and i think that would have been more effective even than having to use bud's coin to close the circuit right and then, uh, yeah, he saves the day, and apparently that's enough to make Julie fall in love with him, even though he has done absolutely nothing to win over her affections. I mean, he saved her life, but he has done nothing for her. He saved her life because she was in the, mo she was in the landing module. He didn't do anything specifically for her. Right, that's what I'm saying. They all survived... But he has done nothing to prove that he would be a good partner to her. That's the other thing. They squandered such a great opportunity to have a female on this flight and, and you know, giving her a layered character where she's had to prove her worth this whole time. And instead, she's used as a device for Fred, like... Not only does it not make sense because it's so unmotivated, and this is what I'm talking about where not having a strong enough main character makes the entire film collapse, he hasn't really done anything still to make us like him. He redeemed himself because he saved the day, but he's still not a likable character where I would believe that she would fall for him or be able to even look past all of his idiosyncrasies to be attracted to him. Like, there's nothing other than that wish upon a star scene for them to bond over. Yeah. So, I don't buy the romance. And if that's all, if that's all you had a female on this flight for, like, I would have rather it been three dudes. And, and not have even tried just to like you shoehorned a female in there what just to check a box off so that it's not a total sausage fest i guess they just had to give fred a love interest they didn't but they thought that they did disney also thought they had to spend 15 million dollars to make this piece of crap so I, I i don't know so, like i'll give i i buy the relationship with the commander where he earns the commander's respect. Yeah. But there was nothing like that with Julie. The relationships that should mean the most to him throughout this entire film, they rush to build them when there's no reason to believe that the other party would want anything to do with him. Whether it's Bud or Julie, 
they're just kind of like, well, you knew this was going to happen anyway. It's an insult to the audience more than it is anything else, I think. Uh... Do, do you want to talk about the cast here? Do you have anything else on the plot? One final note. Okay. That was a poor excuse for a NASA celebration. Were, you were let down? Yes. Okay. Was that, that, was, that was the final letdown for you? There was no paperwork flying anywhere. Bo Bridges tried like hell to He really it. did. Everybody else let him down. We're going to start with him because we're talking about him and he's one of the few bright spots in this movie. God love him. Bo Bridges as... That's right. I'm not even starting with the main character. Bo Bridges as Bud Nesbitt. He is... He is endearing. I love the line where he tells Fred that he knew that something could go wrong with Apollo 13, but that Paul Wick sort of ignored him. I love that he's kind of this, um, he, he's, he's an underappreciated hero that he's taken the fall for things that are not his fault, but he takes it on the chin because that's his responsibility. He's the most endearing character in the movie. Uh, I agree. I'd say he's also the most respectable character in this movie. I like that they gave that they tried to villainize him, but there's actually a big bad in the works. I like that he gets to redeem himself by being the flight director in the 11th hour. Uh, see, that's the thing. You know, you said we're not starting off with the main character. Really, he is? Because that is the main character arc where everybody was doubting him, but he came through when you really needed him. He's the only one outside of Wild Bill that has a character arc. Right, and he got to prove himself. But to me, that was a missed opportunity for the comedy because you could have made him so much more bitter and angry and a curmudgeon over taking the fall for Apollo 13, and that could have been really funny. But you also did need someone to ground this film, so who better than Bo Bridges to do that? Harlan Williams, we've mentioned him a hundred times, plays Fred Randall. I like Harlan Williams. I think he's funny. I think he's talented. And I think that this was a poor showing for him. I think that perhaps he was typecast after this because of this film. I can see where he did take this film. It's a Disney movie. It's a space movie. It's a leading role. This is one of those instances where if I were him, I probably would have taken it too in spite of the script because you just know, well, it's Disney and it's space and this is what's hot and this is going to be huge for my career. Um, I actually feel really bad for Harlan Williams. This The movie is just so bad and I don't think that it truly did him any favors. I don't think it really did showcase his talents the way that it should have. And I think that he took the fall, and I think his acting took the fall, and I think his style took the fall for what is a horrific film. Yeah, I think he did the best that he could with what he had to work with. Um, it, it, the film is a disservice to him because in the moments where he should shine... 
he still doesn't. Like, his impressions are really good, like I said, where he does the Cowardly Lion and he sings King of the Forest. Uh, he does Jiminy Cricket and sings When You Wish Upon a Star. The Whenever he does the different languages in Whole World in His Hands, like, that's all funny. The impressions are funny. The physical comedy is pretty funny. But this film didn't really allow him to reach his full potential. And, you know, we were talking about it before, uh, you know, comparing it to the Jim Carrey movies. In the case of Dumb and Dumber, it's the Ferrelli brothers writing. They're, they're a strong duo. There are three writers on this movie. And I think that that's sort of where this falls apart because it's too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, but like none of those cooks had a good idea in them. Right. Or like not put one of them on the main character and the rest on story. That's why it feels so disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I can't justify it and I can't find reasons for it. Um, Jessica Lundy is Julie Ford. Um, Julie Ford is a, a super smart character for half the movie, and you dumbed her down. I'm sorry, people are not going to like this. You dumbed her down to Fred's level because you just did, because Fred needed a love interest. There's, there's no nice way of putting it. All of her brilliance, because she is, all of her brilliance goes out the window because you picked a star too. You know, I, I can appreciate the fact that they tried to plant things early, like when Bill got him drunk and she tried to, like, intervene and say, it's not funny, you shouldn't do this to somebody. But then she just gets so sick and tired of Fred and has no faith in him for so long they they just they ruin the character. They ruin the character. No, I I completely agree. They squandered an opportunity here. William Sadler plays Bill Overbeck the commander. I think he has a proper arc. I think that William Sadler played the role well. I think the, I think the character has good motivation. Um he he probably has other than other than uh, Bud, he probably has the most the, the the best motivation of any character in the movie. I agree that he has motivation. I agree that he has an arc, but he's another one that sort of falls apart in the third act, and not just because he gives in to calling Fred mommy, uh, but I don't buy him as a leader to get out of this situation. You know, he's. Yes, he remains calm under pressure, but prior to that, you know, he's saying, I waited for this my entire life. This was my dream. I wanted to be the first one on Mars. And he sounds like a petulant child. Like, I understand his frustrations because Fred has foiled everything that he set out to do, but the fact that you're even on this mission and you got to go to Mars, like, that should be enough for you. It should be. I get where his frustration, though, is because he trained his whole life. He was on nine shuttle missions. And here comes this guy who trips over his own two feet. I get it. 
I, I can't say that I would feel any differently if, if the shoe was on my foot. Um, but I will agree with you that he doesn't seem like much of a leader. He doesn't seem like a commander. He doesn't seem like somebody that could lead a group of astronauts to Mars. Right. Um, and then Paul Wick was played by Jeffrey DeMunn. Um, I think, is he a big bad? Yeah, he's a big bad because he knowingly puts them in a compromised position because of his own career. But, you know, not for anything, but Wild Bill kind of does the same thing. Wild Bill doesn't want the mission to get pushed. Wild Bill is the one that goes back out into the sandstorm. If anything, I think Julie kind of questioned it. But they really, more than questioned the mission, they just questioned Fred being named the replacement. But I think Wick, the, the motivation behind his decisions makes sense. And I think you could have developed more of a villain out of it, and they didn't. Um, I'm actually going to disagree because I like that it was subtle, that there is a reveal when, uh, Bud tells Fred that, that Wick was actually the one responsible for Apollo 13 because, you know, and, and it does come full circle here because he's still not listening. Yeah. If he, if it would have been just the same old, same old, and all he cared about was his career and nothing else, then yes, I would have bought... There, yes, there was an opportunity there, and they squandered it. But, I mean, I think that's kind of just this movie as a whole, right? Um, I, I guess final thoughts? Final thoughts on Rocket Man? Does this movie hold up? Is it as good as it was? Are you glad that you bought one of the first DVDs that was ever released uh, by Disney? But believe it or not, one of the first Disney films ever released on DVD was Rocket Man. Are you glad you bought it? You stand by this movie? I was a kid. Back off. You were a kid when you bought the DVD? Not when I bought the DVD, but I was a kid when I liked this movie. And then, because it does disappear, and now we understand why. I mean, it is not on Disney Plus now. The only reason we got to watch it is because I did have it. But that's the thing. I found it funny when I was a kid. So by the time I was buying my own DVDs and I found it, I remembered, oh, I like this movie. Let me grab I probably, this is your fault. I probably went to Best Buy after work, picked up the film, and there was a person there working the register that didn't stop me. And I thank that person so many years later because what you did that day was you spent your hard-earned money on this DVD so that I didn't have to pay $3.99 to rent it for this review. I meant because you worked at Best Buy. You could have rang me up for all I know. You could have sold me this movie. And the Lord thanks That's me. That's a true story. The I We worked in the same town up the road from each other, and every day I would go and spend my paychecks at Best Buy. And the Lord thanks you. The Lord thanks you for your work. <laughs> Um, well, wait, I, I do have to give my serious final synopsis here. Uh, we have reviewed bad films on this show before, like just out and out bad films, see Black Cauldron. We have reviewed films that we loved as kids and 
we have admitted that they didn't hold up, but we still love them anyway. I think this is the first time where a film that I really liked as a kid not only doesn't hold up, but I'm seeing it for what it truly is, and I really have nothing to say in its defense. This is just a bad movie. Comedy-wise, structurally, as a screenplay, it just doesn't work. Uh, yeah, it, it's not even that there's not enough to redeem it. It's, it's just bad. Because I've rambled and because I've burned this movie to the ground for the last hour and 15 minutes or so, I'll be concise. This is the worst film I have ever watched for Monorail Radio. And it's almost not even close. Because I think the only one that is almost as bad, which really says an awful lot about that movie, is High School Musical 2. This is the worst film I've ever watched for this show. Movies like this make The Black Cauldron look good. Because Black Cauldron, you can see where they tried. Black Cauldron, I think the movie was too dark for its time. I think Katzenberg hacking it up left a lot on the cutting room floor that would have filled in a lot of gaps. And I think that try as they might, they just... I don't think they had fine-tuned the technology enough. This is not only the worst film I have ever watched for Monorail Radio, but this is one of the worst films I have ever watched in my life. Yowza! Um, I put this up there with Birdemic. I put this up there with The Room. The Room... Wow. The Room is horrible. But at the same time, it, there's just such a strange love for it that so many people share. Nobody shares that about this film. And I'm glad to say that we watched it now because we don't have to watch it next week. We don't have to watch it for episode 200 or 300 of Monorail Radio. I like the fact that I'll never have to watch this movie again for the rest of my life. Unless you lose a bit. And we want to know what you have to say about Rocket Man. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week and a contest winner are coming up, but first, a quick break. Thank God. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly checked for discounts to make sure we were guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. 
our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, or you can email me directly at j.zalezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, -Z at magicalvacationplanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are hosting an event this year and you need invitations, save the dates, thank you cards, table numbers, Kelly has you covered, plus listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONORAIL10 at checkout. See everything that she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. A little bit of Parks news this week. The ongoing refurbishment at uh, Expedition Everest, which I assume is not to fix the Disco Yeti, uh, seems to be prolonged... And we don't know for how long anymore. Um, there is no estimated opening date for S Expedition Everest. Um, I'm not sure exactly what kind of work they are doing, but it must be something substantial because as slow as Disney is to get projects done, refurbishments are usually pretty quick. So I'm surprised that we don't really have an ETA for its reopening. Yeah. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that it's not Disco Yeti that they're fixing, and the irony is that the one person who can fix it is now working designing rocket interiors. Joe Rody. Yes. Gotta love it. You can get filled in on some other news regarding our relocation to Florida and some of the things that we've been doing as Disney locals. We released our first Dockside chat this week. That was a lot of fun. You can go listen to it on verbal or your podcast platform of choice and you know we kind of fill you guys in on the move and everything that we've been doing uh disney related which is which was a lot of fun which is not parks related because we don't have our eps yet we will keep you posted on that yeah. but uh yeah we do fill you in on multiple trips to disney springs sean did uh run disney yes. so we'll tell you what that was like uh and we're going to be dropping those once a month ish hopefully once a month hopefully once a month that's our goal uh and that'll be more parks related content um and lastly we do have a contest winner yes uh we did do a giveaway on our social media for a prize pack uh consisting of uh multiple uh, pieces of Encanto memorabilia, plus a straw charm from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and a Monoreal Radio t-shirt. And we are happy to announce that the winner of our Encanto prize pack is... Had to be there 203. We will be in touch with you to get your shipping information. Thank you to the rest of you that entered to win the contest. Don't fret, because you know that we will have a contest running with... Tons of fun giveaways and great straw charms from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. every month. So make sure you are following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio and on TikTok as well. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just told you where to find us on social media. I just told you where you can find the show if you're looking to download it on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Um, for links to everything... Where you need to find Monoreal Radio, whether it is on your podcast platform or on the social media, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. 
<sighs> I am so relieved. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.